What a joy to see all of those families lined up, to think that those little ones really have no idea how privileged they are to have families coming around them to point them to Jesus and an entire church family coming around them to point them to Jesus. Praise God. May he do a glorious work in their lives. Because the Bible is the very word of God, we can be confident that it describes reality as it is. That is an important truth to remember because this morning's passage describes the reality of our natural spiritual condition before God, that is, before we met Jesus Christ. When I say that our passage describes our natural condition before God, I, of course, mean you and me, but I also mean all people. I mean every person who has ever lived and every person who will live. Because the Bible is God's word, it can speak authoritatively about the condition of the human race and the human heart, and it can do so without apology and with, frankly, refreshing clarity. There is no one more qualified than God to diagnose the human condition. There is no one more able to explain us to us than the one who made us and the one who sustains us. Because God sees everything with with perfect accuracy, then whatever he says about us is in fact true as it relates to addressing our sin. That's a terrifying concept. Because the Lord is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot even look at wrong, the prophet Habakkuk tells us. Which means if God declares us guilty or dead or unclean or unholy, we can be assured that we are guilty, dead, unclean, unholy, because his judgments are perfectly just. There's absolutely nothing that leaves us more exposed than to stand before the holy gaze of God with nothing to cover our sinful condition. Indeed, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But, because God is rich in mercy, because God loves us with a great love, because God does see everything with perfect clarity, and because he only ever says what is in fact True, it is also the best news imaginable that what God says is true about us is in fact true for us. When God looks directly at us and because of our faith in Jesus sees the pure covering of the righteousness of his beloved son and declares us clean, innocent, righteous, holy, And beloved, 
we can be assured that we are in fact, in his eyes, clean, innocent, righteous, holy, and beloved, according to the highest standard of purity and of holiness in heaven and on earth. For it is also a wonderful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now our passage this morning is Ephesians 2, 1 through the first part of verse 5. And I want to read it for us this morning. Brothers and sisters, hear the word of the one who knows and understands us with absolute clarity. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Lord, would you, would you open our eyes to see this truth this morning? And would you help us to rejoice because of what you have done for us in Christ? We ask in his name. Amen. Why do all people need Jesus Christ to save them? Why do you and I need someone who's not just a good example for us to show us the way? Why do we need more than just a a life coach? Why do we need more than a profound philosopher? Why do we need a Savior to ransom, to rescue, to redeem us? The answer is, according to the opening verses of Ephesians 2, the answer is because of of what is wrong with us. Not just us, but what is wrong with the whole human race. But the miracle of the gospel proclaims that though the diagnosis of our problem couldn't be more serious, the solution to our problem could not be more glorious. So this morning, let's walk through our passage in a simple way by asking, what's the problem Paul is addressing here in verses 1 through 3? What's he getting at? 
Who solved the problem? Verse 4, and how did he solve the problem? Verse 5. Now, if we were in Sunday school, you could probably answer each one of those things in two seconds, right? Sin, God, Jesus. I'd just hand out a couple Skittles and say, we'll see you next week. So why is it important for us to talk about this now? And the reason I think it's important is not only so that we can understand, be reminded of the reality of the situation, but that that reminder will lead us to celebrate the glory of Jesus Christ once again. Now, we we learn a lot about ourselves in the first few verses here. God's assessment of us is that We're spiritually dead, we're followers of the world, we're followers of Satan, we're followers of our fleshly passions, therefore we're under his judgment and objects of his holy wrath. What is fascinating, if not disturbing, about this diagnosis, in the way that Paul explains it, is that we can be completely dead spiritually. No detectable spiritual pulse. Yet, we are extremely active. We're like like spiritual corpses committed to CrossFit. We're working hard and we're looking good on the outside, but, but inside we're just rotting away. Now, especially if we're following the impress others logic of the world, as Paul says that we are, and we're influenced by a being who thinks it's good to disguise himself as a beautiful angel of light. If that's who our influences are, we can look like we're thriving to others. But our souls can be utterly flatlined. In fact, this is the default position of the human soul unless God does a supernatural work to resuscitate it. Now, I've sat across from from husbands and wives who are married, they're, they're living together, they have a nice home, raising kids, going to church, both working often. And I've said to them, why are you here? What's the problem? Everything looks fine on the outside. And they've said, our marriage, using these words, has been dead for years. What do they mean by that? Sometimes they'll say, it's like we're just, we're, we're pretending, we're, we're, we're posing for everyone else, but there's no life in our relationship. There is nothing that unites us. Human beings without God are like spiritual taxidermists 
We, we pose ourselves in various positions to look as good as we can, as beautiful or as fierce or as alive as we can look, but in reality we're completely dead. No true spiritual life of any kind within until God does a work in us. Now, later in chapter 4, as we're trying to understand what Paul means by this idea of spiritual deadness, later in chapter 4, Paul will challenge the believers to no longer walk as, as the unbelieving Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And listen to the language that he uses in chapter 4 and verse 18 here. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Sounds very Romans 1-ish. In other words, despite being dead to or blind to or veiled outside the spiritual life of God, the Bible describes our condition, our natural spiritual condition, in a number of ways. We are influenced despite our deadness, in powerful ways by the spiritual realm. The only problem is that many of these influences are acting in rebellion against God, either passively or aggressively. Listen to our verses again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The the picture here is like sheep being led to the slaughter. They're captured. They're under the direct influence of spiritual forces from which we are powerless to escape on our own. What makes the matter worse is either knowingly or unwittingly, we are complicit in the rebellion that they are perpetuating against God himself. It is as if the world and the flesh and the devil our old nemeses, are all kind of tributaries merging into one powerful river of rebellion, attempting to flood God's creation by just saturating it with their filth, attempting to contaminate God's purposes and attempting to condemn God's people. When we consider it together, when we see it here in back-to-back phrases stacked on top of one another, we are reminded of how bleak the situation actually was for us before Christ. The world is an exceedingly beautiful place. There are echoes of Eden everywhere we look. But the prince of the power of the air, which is just another way of saying the the spiritual ruler of this temporal world, 
is leading a systematic plan of utter and complete destruction against God and his entire creation, whether that's obvious every day or not. And sometimes it is. Just think about what's happening. From the degradation of the family to the marginalization of covenant marriage, from the war on the unborn to the epidemic of irresponsible fatherhood, from the abuse of women and children to the insanity of every form of sexual perversion, from the utter worship of self to the rebellion that includes even denying the most fundamentally basic realities of what it means to be made in the image of God as man and woman. The spiritual forces of evil at work out there in the culture and the spiritual forces of work who are at work in here in our hearts give us a terrifying glimpse of the reality of the human heart and the nature of hell itself. These realities testify to the comprehensiveness of the plan to systematically annihilate any hint of the goodness and glory of God anywhere in the world. This is what's happening in the spiritual realm. Paul tells us later in Ephesians 6, this is what we're up against. This is what we're fighting. In my opinion, the the thoroughness of the attack against all things beautiful and true and good makes it blatantly obvious that there is an evil power more intelligent than us overseeing and superintending the rebellion against God. To me, that's the most logical explanation. But the infinitely superior beauty and power and holiness and goodness of the only being who is not created namely God himself, is the most obvious and clear and straightforward and glorious truth testified to anywhere in the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation. God's plan to completely destroy the works of the devil and to fully redeem every aspect of his creation, including us, indeed to make all things wonderfully and indestructibly and eternally absolutely perfect is a plan that is guaranteed by the Father and by the Son and by the Holy Spirit. No matter what Satan is scheming. Satan is raging in anger against God and against God's beloved people. But his days are numbered. And his power is counterfeit. His defeat was assured when Jesus triumphed over him on Calvary's cross. And the victory of God over the prince of the power of the air was announced to the entire cosmos. When Jesus, the son of God, 
that is the Son of Man, walked out of the grave and ascended into the air. Whose realm is it now? To take his seat on the throne of heaven, the mercy seat, the power seat of the universe, so that he might receive an eternal kingdom and reign forever as every enemy, the world, the flesh, and Satan himself has been placed in subjection to Jesus under his glorious feet. That's what Paul's talking about here in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2. The reason all people need to be saved by Jesus Christ is because we are all dead. We all need transformed, and we are all under God's wrath against sin and evil. If all of these problems are not solved, we have no hope because we need resurrected, we need redeemed, and we need rescued from the wrath to come. But who in all creation could possibly solve the magnitude of this problem? The reason it's important to spend time describing it and to look at it all together is so that we come to the obvious conclusion, we need God. If God doesn't help us, we have no hope whatsoever. Praise God for verses 4 and 5. Realizing this, God has a plan. That God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. Really, this, in this whole opening 10 verses or so, it's Paul doing what Paul likes to do, which is write a very, 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 very long sentence. We add punctuation. Mercifully, the translators add punctuation to help us. But the subject of this whole section is this, God, subject, verb, made us alive. That's the point. The contrasts in Ephesians are striking. We have the beauty and the wonder and the supremacy of God's glory and his goodness and his grace described incredibly powerfully in Ephesians 1, over and against the horror and the destructiveness and the wickedness of evil's influence in the world and in our lives. But it's the supremacy, the superiority of God's goodness that will cause his people, that will cause us to praise him forever and ever and ever. The reality is that when we rebel against him, God is the only one to whom we can turn for help. <clears throat> so thank God for God. Praise God for God. Praise God that he is rich in mercy. Brothers and sisters, he is richer 
in mercy than you are poor in righteousness. After all that King David had been through in his life, which was a lot, after all that God had done for him, nonetheless, at the end of his life, David sinned against the Lord by numbering the people God had given him. At the end of 2 Samuel, David cries out to the Lord in confession and in repentance to God. And in response, God sends the prophet Gad to David. And Gad gives David three options. One, you will experience three years of famine. Two, you can choose to flee from your enemies for three months. Or third, there will be three days of pestilence in your land. What do you want to do, king? Listen to David's words in light of what we just heard about the richness of God's mercy. David says, I am in great distress. But let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hands of men. 2 Samuel 24. It's because David knows that God is rich in mercy. God is his only hope. God wants us to be confident in his mercy, in his character, and his desire to be merciful to us. The writer of Hebrews exhorts us in light of what Jesus has accomplished, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace in time of need. Where do you need God's mercy this morning? Maybe you've been pressing against God to no avail your whole life. Or if you're a believer in Jesus, maybe as you sit here this morning, you found yourself once again in a place of desperation. In need of mercy. Because of doubt. Or discouragement. Or because of your sin. If so, based on the authority of the word of God, and in particular, the passage I just read from Hebrews. Friend or brother and sister in Christ, run to the throne of grace. Bow your head now and talk to the Lord because access to him has been opened up by Jesus Christ forever. God is rich in mercy And he loves us with a great love. Rich in mercy, great love. I love when the Bible amplifies God's attributes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's what we're talking about this morning. We were dead. We need life. 
God is rich in mercy and he loves us. So he sends Jesus so that we might have life. Or 1 John 4, in this the love of God was made evident among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Which brings us to the way that he solved the problem. Romans 5.8 While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died died for us, or in the language of Ephesians 2, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. This is the beauty of the picture of baptism. Baptism is a picture of resurrection, both of Jesus and of the believer by faith. We needed to be ransomed from the one who held us in captivity. We need redeemed from our sin, and we needed mercy. So much so that we needed to be resurrected from the spiritual dead. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone again and again and again? And they look at you like you're crazy again and again and again. It seems to have no effect on their heart. And you think, how could that be true? Paul tells us it's because they're dead. That's why they're not responding. They don't see it. But there's hope because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Who solved the problem? Not just our problem, but the problem for all mankind. No matter where you're from, no matter whom you worship falsely. Jesus Christ solved the problem. In particular, the Father solved the problem. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ... Peter says it this way, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, that is, made alive, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the reality of our condition, says God's word. This is the way Paul says it in Romans 8.11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that is, if you have expressed faith in Jesus Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Even if you're a believer, but you arrived this morning feeling totally comatose, spiritually speaking. You felt dead on arrival as you walked through those doors. Take this truth to heart. 
he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead is capable of resurrecting your heart even now. Lord, do this work. Spirit of the living God, Spirit of the living God, breathe life into our souls. This morning I pray. The reason I'm hopeful is because this, this is the very context by which God does impart life. That is, preaching for sure, but only if it's preaching the Word of God. So if you're studying the Word of God, you're looking at the Word of God, you're recalling the Word of God, God might use that to breathe life into your soul. Life comes through God's word by the power of his, of his spirit. 1 Peter 1.23 You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through, through the living and abiding word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In him was life. And we are in union with Jesus. Throughout the Old Testament and the New, God has given us powerful examples to eradicate, to serve to eradicate any doubt about his ability to call forth life from death. Recall in Genesis 1 that life was called forth out of nothing, out of absolutely nothing by the simple declaration of the word of God. Let there be light. Let there be life teeming throughout all my creation. Brothers and sisters, the word of God is just as powerful today. He can call forth life from nothing and he can call forth life from death. God can call forth life in the temporal realm, and he can call forth life in the spiritual realm because he is Lord over both. God created your body and at some point breathed life into your soul. Therefore, he can bring and breathe resurrected life into your soul. Think about the images that God's word gives us so that we would know his sovereign power over death. The Lord Jesus spoke into the silence of the grave. Lazarus, come forth. What was Lazarus thinking? What in the world? I hear the voice of my God. And Lazarus started breathing and walked out of the grave because of the power of God's word. So too, the Lord can call forth your soul from its, its current state of spiritual deadness. Through the prophet Ezekiel, the Lord once described to Israel, his beloved people, how he had found her. And this is the imagery that he gave through the prophet Ezekiel. 
said you were like an abandoned child lying in a field in a pool of your own blood because of your sinful ways. When I passed by you, the Lord says, and I saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, live. I said to you as you were wallowing in your blood, live. And you began to flourish, he says to the prophet Ezekiel. Do you still wonder, is God powerful enough to call forth life from death? He once demonstrated the point to Ezekiel that he can create a whole people out of death if he wants to. Ezekiel describes it in this way. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, "Uh, O Lord, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them. And flesh had come upon them. And skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, 
and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. looking forward to the reality of the resurrection. In Matthew 27 and verse 50, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, as we have sung already this morning, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, Matthew says. And coming out of the graves after the resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. The kingdom of God is at hand. A little foretaste that the resurrection is certain. God solved the problem of spiritual death through the death and resurrection of Jesus. All people need Jesus Christ to save them because he's the only one who solved the problem of sin. He's the only one who can rescue them from Satan. He's the only one who can redeem them from their sin by his own blood. He is the only one, therefore, that can deliver them from the wrath of God. And he's the only one who can resurrect them from the dead. Therefore, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is the truth of our condition and that is the truth about the only solution provided by God for the entire world. Would you pray with me? Um, Father, uh, to be honest, it's, it's overwhelming to consider the desperateness of our situation apart from Jesus. But we recognize that you did send him. You did send a redeemer. You did send one to rescue us. You did send someone to save us. And so, Lord, you and you alone are our salvation. Because you called us forth from spiritual death. And you made us alive together with Christ. And so we praise you. We praise you, Father. And we praise you, Son. And we praise you, Holy Spirit. All glory to your name alone. Amen.